Hello, my friends. Mandy here with a quick invitation for you to join the Patreon for our show. We've recently switched up some of the benefits, including a new monthly workbook to go along with all the incredible content you're getting on the show. It's a quote yourself through grief kind of a vibe. And for only $10 a month, it is a wholly worthy and affordable way to invest in your own healing process without the commitment of a full coaching relationship. Learn more at patreon.com slash Mandy Capehart. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as always for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 111, titled Nuance and Secondary Trauma with J.S. Park. Secondary trauma happens to every one of us, but knowing how to recognize it and what to do about it is a challenging intersection to navigate. While we feel the importance and the urgency of the needs of others in crisis, we cannot simply bypass or minimize our own. So today we're going to tackle the nuance and complexity found in secondary trauma with author J.S. Park, whose work as a chaplain in a level one trauma center is the perfect microcosm of humanity for us to study and examine this conversation. There are a lot of activating statements and concepts and things that we'll talk about. So if you are feeling a little bit unbalanced yourself right now, or a little bit nervous about the conversation, please get somewhere comfortable or maybe come back to this when you're in a little bit more of a steady place. Hey everybody, welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. I am here today with author and chaplain June Park. He is one of the most gentle and compassionate friends I've made on the internet. And I am so honored to have him here today to talk with us about something that is on all of our minds almost all the time, whether we like it or not. And that's really why we're bringing it to the forefront and having a conversation about um, big losses, global losses. So thank you for being here today, June. Mandy, thank you for having me. And it's uh, definitely not lost on us, I don't think, about how difficult and how um, the word that you use activating this conversation can be even talking about it. But uh, thank you for having me again. I'm, I'm so happy to, to be here and to talk with you. You know, I'm a fan of your work. And so I'm, I'm glad for our friendship and fellowship. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm grateful that we have this ability to, to sit down and say, Hey, this is going to be really activating both for us, even though we're in these fields where we're addressing loss and trauma on a daily basis, but also for people who are listening, secondary trauma and vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, and however you want to frame it are so common that we, we almost don't notice when it's happening to us. And so as you're listening, everybody, if this is a conversation that seems like it might be a little challenging for you, get comfortable, maybe hit pause and go find a blanket and a cup of tea because this conversation is so necessary, but it's not going to be an easy one. So um, be gentle with your nervous system and be kind to yourself while you're listening. Don't just say, oop, that's hard and turn it off um, because we're, we're really going to be talking about how to keep capacity in ourselves while we are still holding space for the complexity and the intensity of what's happening around us. Hmm. So why don't we start June by giving um, the listeners who don't know you a little bit of context about your work and why you are so well suited for this conversation. Yeah. Thanks Mandy. Um, I am a, a chaplain in a hospital. I work at a level one trauma center. It's over a 
uh, a thousand beds uh, in this hospital. We're always at capacity. And so part of my role is grief counsel and uh, chaplains, we attend every death, every code blue, and every trauma that enters. And traumas encompass uh, gunshot wounds, car accidents, fire, fall, stabbing, drowning, lots of difficult things that we see that are very, very high acuity cases. And so uh, part of my role at the clinical, I guess, technical definition is non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. And so some of our role is technical, like we'll assist with end-of-life care and helping to complete advanced directives, which is about assigning decision makers or what a patient would like if they ever did end up on life support. But a lot of times I'm there to listen and to give space to allow uh, my patients to vent, to tell their story. If they want prayer, I'll pray for them. But mainly, um, you know, a lot of times religion doesn't even come up. I think sometimes the idea of a chaplain is someone wearing a collar and we're going to do last rites. Um, but a lot of times I just sit with patients and I listen and I make space for anything that they're going through the entire range of grief, whether that's tears and anger or it's numbness and cognitive fog or someone just wants to share about their glory days. That's what I'm there for. Yeah. I think being capable of holding that space, as we know, is not a permanent skill. It comes and goes, our capacity to be in that space, to be um, really present with people is something you build over time. But as time goes on, secondary trauma comes to the table as well. And so why don't you describe what that is in simple terms for people? Yeah. So uh, though I am not, of course, an expert in this, I can say as a practitioner, as someone who's in the field yeah. and just day in and day out um, in the practice of being a chaplain in the hospital, in a hospital that is very much like a city, it's always moving, it's always full. Um, many healthcare workers and myself, uh, chaplains included, we are going to take on, um, as you mentioned, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. And you know, there are many definitions of trauma out there, but the way that I've heard is trauma is the imprint that is left by a debilitating or negative event, uh, which overwhelms our resources to deal with it. And it's not necessarily the event itself, but the imprint that it leaves on us. And so physiologically, physically, we feel in our bodies when we tend to people who are experiencing a severe crisis in trauma. Uh, we, in some measure, uh, take it on. And so trauma emanates and passes on uh, from each of us because we are each connected. And so um, healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, surgeons, all of them, they're going to, in some measure, in their own bodies, experience what their patient is going through. And I think there is a physiological component to it, but there's also this, uh, I would say, spiritual slash psychological slash emotional component to it that uh, we were talking about a lot in 2020. Um, it originally was sort of, I guess, coined or discovered in military terms. It was called moral distress and in specific moral injury. So it's uh, when you have to make a decision and really there are no good decisions and someone has to choose one thing or the other. And I remember in 2020, and sort of a content warning here. In 2020, um, hospitals that were under-resourced had to decide which of their COVID patients were going to get the ventilators. Mm. 
because not everyone could be intubated. There wasn't enough oxygen. There weren't enough machines and equipment. And the physicians who had to decide that, they were constantly going through moral distress and constantly getting moral injuries. Um, and we see that even in our day-to-day. -day. You know, when I have a, um, when I go into work, we get consults. And if there's quite a lot of consults, um, I have to decide who I'm gonna see first. And sometimes nurses are stretched because they may have many patients, many needs, it's urgent. And as they're stretched, they want to help more and do more and fix more. And even seeing a patient, we're each limited in what we can do because sometimes the illness or injury is so terrible and so all-consuming. And so we sit and watch as our patient slowly succumbs or suffers. And so that type of moral distress and moral injury is difficult. Now, if we, if we expand that in a global sense, when we are seeing horrific tragedy, atrocities occur overseas, there's going to be, of course, vicarious trauma in the images that we're seeing, in the stories of lives lost, looking into the faces of children and families that are suffering. And there's going to be moral distress and moral injury in, well, what can I do? Is there more that I can do? How can I fix this? Is me shouting into the sea of voices enough? And so I think in some way, there is this global collective moral distress that is happening, where because we are so connected and we have this deep capacity for compassion, we want to do more, but it's hard to know where to start and how. And even for those who are doing a lot, petitioning, protesting, writing, um, even those who are doing a lot, it's like, I need to do more, I need to do more. And that wheel keeps turning. And so, um, Mandy, I know I'm probably over answering your question, mm -mm. but whether it's at bedside or across the globe, um, we are seeing right now a very, very acute level of this moral distress, moral injury, this vicarious trauma. And it, it's, it's really such a difficult thing that we're going through right now. Yeah. What you said earlier about physiological changes happening in the people who are caring for those in traumatic circumstances, it made me think of attunement. We, when we have attunement in relationship with someone else, we are matching their energy for in the simplest way to say it, right? We're wanting to, we come to their level, we can feel safe, we feel regulated, but the same is true when we are dysregulated. We can have attunement with someone who is dysregulated and come out of our safety into the physiological distress of another person. So I'm curious, how would you invite people to start softening around that idea of, well, it's a privilege to not watch the news or know what's going on in the world? Yeah, Mandy, not to, of course, make light of this at all, but uh, I'm going to solve this in about five minutes. No, I'm, I'm really <laughs> kidding. I, I'm completely kidding. Of course, I can't uh, hope to, you know, solve that or, or, or bring any kind of closure to that because the thing that you're asking, of course, that's uh, it's impossible to completely fully address because we are mired in constant, continual, perpetual tragedy and circumstances even outside of our understanding right now. And even what's happening in Afghanistan and the Congo and um, it, there's so many different places and people that we will never even hear about in the news. Right where there's tragedy and suffering, where 
cameras, videos will never be taken. Right. Um, so many stories going untold. And, you know, real quick story, you know, in 2020, people were talking about staying home and like, don't go out and social distance. Uh, and even saying that, uh, just stay home. Mm -hmm. That comes with a certain level of comfort and uh, assumption. And privilege. And, uh, yeah. And healthcare workers could not opt out of COVID rooms. Right. Uh, you know. So there's a certain level of comfort that many of us can have and afford. And then there are always going to be those who cannot opt out at all in all the different ways, all the different spheres that we move in. So my initial thought is to say, if we do have leverage, platform, privilege, power, resource to speak, my hope is, and also intertwined with that, my caution is, my hope and my caution are use that platform in every way that you are built and that you are to speak. Because the reason that we are where we are is because people before us have spoken. The reason that we have uh, labor laws, the reason that we have voting rights, the reason that we have um, spaces to be able to uh, get married the way that we want, uh, to be able to receive the health care that we need. Um, the voices that we have are from voices before us who took a risk with the power and the privilege and platform they were given so that we could even have the freedom to move the lane that we're in. I will always, always vouch for that. And maybe it's not explicit in the way of here's this post that I'm sharing or here are the exact words that need to be said. I've always said that we need our artists and poets and our dancers. We need our people who are sharing in different kinds of ways, like people walking on the street, people in the government who may not be posting about it, but they are certainly behind the scenes or through their medium speaking up. We need all the different lanes and, you know, the influencers as well and all those digital platforms. We need all those lanes. We need therapists and educators. We need all of us to come together with our expertise and wisdom. But wherever we are, speaking up is important. But the thing I've always said is uh, it's probably a too whimsical, but I've always said, you know, press in and then get your rest in there, you know, for those of us who are able to use our power and platform for that, we are finite beings, we are limited, you know, our capacity for compassion, I believe is endless. But to carry out that compassion and action, we are limited people, in the sense that our bodies can break down, and that we are each carrying a different load already. And so each of us in our homes, in our backyards, across the street, each of us are already carrying quite a lot in our lives. And then to extend a hand across the ocean, that's a lot. And I don't think, for many people, I don't think it's asking for much to extend a hand across an ocean. We can certainly do that. But um, I say that with the caveat that there needs to be opportunity and moments for each of us to still experience rest and joy and to be able to take time away. And I say that with some measure of guilt that moral distress comes back in. 
I say that with some measure of awareness that I'm lucky that I get to opt out and turn off my phone if I want, that I get to be in the comfort of this home. Um, and at the same time, I, I'm sure that the voices before us, our ancestors, the people who carried um, all the load on their backs so that we could have freedom today, also at times had to sleep and had to eat. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it would tell us it's okay to rest right now. You know, the sun has gone down or, you know, your family is here. It's time for them. I'm sure, I'm sure of it that our ancestors would say that, um, that they wouldn't tell us 24 seven, you need to be out there, you know, pivoting all your energy into this. Um, so pick your battles, protect your energy, uh, press in, get your rest in. And for each of us, that's not going to be perfect. And I want to make sure it's not a cop out that we keep ourselves accountable, but also to keep ourselves accountable to knowing when to rest, knowing what our rhythms are, knowing what our body needs. I think you hit it right there at the end, especially because in Western culture, we are not well versed in rest or rhythm. We are experts in productivity and goal setting and accomplishment. And funny too, going back to something you said earlier about working at the hospital, like a city that never sleeps. I was thinking about a strategizing tool that I use in my life, the Eisenhower box, which allows me the opportunity to say like, are these things that I'm doing urgent or important? Or it, it really, it challenges the nature of both things. Are the things I'm saying, is this urgent or is this false urgency? Is this important or is it false importance? In a traumatic setting, in crisis, everything is urgent and important. And yet you still have to make those moral dilemma decisions to really decide where to go. And if you are living in a heightened state of activation, you're not necessarily given the opportunity to say, ah, the urgency is removed. I can give myself permission to take a step back and rest. So I say that because I'm thinking about the way we can give ourselves permission to honor our own mental health versus the way modern media has given us 24 hour access to what's going on everywhere. So my original undergrad degree started in journalism and anthropology. I was very set on going around the world, learning about cultures and writing their stories. And what that has given me is a willingness to look away from just daily news media and look at in-depth narratives and stories and books that have been written about different cultures. And I think that the difference there is there's no immediacy of um, the day-to-day -day news cycle, right? Um, how would you invite someone who is concerned, who is trying to say, but what about the Middle East? But what about South America? But what about, right? All of these things that are happening, comparing traumas as if that's a rational thing to do, which it's not appropriate nor rational. What about, what would you bring to them to say like, hey, 
how can you, or let me say this differently. What would you bring to those individuals who are trying desperately to be involved, but need to step away from that news cycle? Um, but don't feel, don't feel right. It's not the right word, but there's like a sense of black and white. Either I'm invested in the news cycle or I'm completely self-centered and I can't stay there. Like there's so many cognitive distortions that are rolling around in that mindset as well. Yeah. Again, I wish I had uh, an easy answer for this one. And I think I can attest to the fact that I probably get this wrong. So maybe by my wrong answer, <laughs> someone can figure out what's right for them. But uh, I can at least give the example of, you know, when I clock out at work, uh, my brain and my, my heart does not clock out. I carry my work with me. I, I'm not one of those guys who can just, you know, leave everything that happened over in the office or over in the hospital floor. I take it with me. And uh, when I read the news, I feel everything deeply. Uh, I guess I'm one of those guys who just uh, weeps at the news. You know, it breaks my heart every day. And uh, even good news gets me to weep, you know, um, seeing like the breakthroughs in Alzheimer's research and just, you know, seeing these young scientists inventing things, stuff like that always brings me, gets me emotional. Um, so is there a clean cut line where we can compartmentalize and say, hey, here's our, uh, you know, advocacy and activism. And then over here is where I'm going to be like a regular family person, you know, <laughs> do my own stuff. Um, I don't know that I've found that. And, uh, you know, when people ask me like, Hey, as a chaplain, you know, this is a common, I guess, interview question, like, you know, what do you do for your self care? You know, and I, I want to say all the things like, uh, you know, I try to eat right and exercise and I go to therapy, I take medication, you know, all those kinds of things, which are important and beneficial. Uh, but I also always say, you know, if I were to grade myself on that, um, according to whichever standards, I probably get a, like a D minus or, a, you know, <laughs> maybe a C at most. Um, because self-care at some point, it's almost like I'm just trying to tolerate conditions that shouldn't be tolerated, yeah. you know? And uh, for me, I'm just trying to be okay with feeling all of it mm. and saying, I can't self-care my distress over the world away. I can't just self-care feeling compassion for everything that's happening. What I can do is be where I am at. So if I'm at the hospital, I'm with a patient. That is where I am and I am present in that moment. If I'm reading the news and I'm feeling deeply and I need to, I want to do something, uh, I lean into that. I do what I can in that moment. And then uh, if I see a place that I know I need to speak at or go to or walk with or rally or march or wherever it is, if I can make it there, I will make it there. Um, I do what I can where I'm at and I try to be where I'm at. I think um, when it's all, when the world is stretching us and demanding of us in so many different directions, and I will say even Mandy, even sometimes rightfully so, like we do need to be at these places. like. When there is tragedy and atrocity happening over the ocean, we do need to do something. I, I will, you know, I, I believe that. Sometimes, rightfully so, the world demands of us action and compassion. Even then, I I want to be able to, okay, 
this is where I'm at and this is what I'm going to do and be completely present in what I'm doing. Because I think there is a temptation, maybe not temptation is the right word, um, but there is a way in which the guilt of inaction can press us into so many different directions mm -hmm. that we don't respect the gifts and callings that we are given and the energy that we are given for the task at hand. And if we don't respect that, we will not be able to move the needle on anything. Yeah. Uh, then we will not be able to use our hands and heart for much. But if we can respect the callings and gifts that we're given, all of us together, uh, then I think the needle can be moved just a bit. So I don't think that's a like a complete answer, but I can say I've gotten this wrong because there are times I've wanted to do so much and I just started sprinting and sprinting towards it. And when you sprint, of course, there's no energy for the marathon. And some things you were talking about the difference between like, what is urgent, you know, and what can be maybe shelved for, you know, second or third or fourth. Um, you know, I used to tag everything urgent all the time. Like I'd star or flag all my emails. Like these are all so important. And you know what? Maybe they are all important, but I am still just one person after all, you know, I don't have a team. So um, I am going to, in my own body, respect what it needs. And at the same time, wherever I am at, I'm going to be 100% there. I think you, um, you and I share a lot of similarities in faith. And to me, I have always believed everything is sacred. And when you recognize I'm going to be right here where my feet are, you are honoring the sacred of the moment. You are honoring your own humanity your own role as an important, crucial person in the map of everything that's happening. And when you sprint, like you were saying, you don't necessarily have aim for the right destination. Our hearts get so caught up in the immediacy of crisis, I think. And that, that survival that we've done from time to time in our lives to get through each of these traumas we've all experienced leads us to compartmentalizing, like you were saying, right? We put these things in a box, we'll come back to it again. But as time goes on, we feel like, okay, things are a little more stable, like COVID, for example, as we've gotten four years into it, okay, we feel a little bit less terrified. Maybe we're a little more comfortable going out. However, we've moved through um, and taken what we can and integrated it. If we do not continually integrate our experiences, in my opinion, then as new secondary traumas are introduced into our lives, we continue that sense of urgency, that spiral um, that just wants to send us shooting off in a direction that seems helpful, uh, that seems productive, that looks good. It reminds me of that horrible season where, or that day that every person was posting black squares on Instagram sure. during the, yeah. the height of Black Lives Matter to try and say like, no, this is me being quiet and letting black voices be amplified. I'm like, no, this is you signaling that you can, you know, look like you're not saying anything, but you are saying a lot. And now all I'm seeing are black squares instead of you actually just literally not contributing that sense of that feeling of this is important. And this is an urgent, timely thing completely missed the mark of, but what's the purpose? What is the end goal that we're working toward? And I think as 
people in the field, but even just as people who exist, if we can approach traumatic circumstances or people experiencing trauma with a mindset towards holistic healing, right? Towards reconciling the person to a state of alignment within themselves, kindness and softness toward themselves and safety, obviously knowing that that's a that's an approach that says, okay, there are not fires, literal fires happening around us, right? Immediacy yeah. of safety in the immediate is different, but, but when we're dealing with the aftermath of things or the ongoing um, tension, honoring that, that longer vision about it, not saying like in seven years, we're going to be free of all this, but really, Hey, tomorrow, where do we want to be? Can we cultivate something today that allows us to experience a sense of security um, without feeling like we're going to blow it all up and, and make huge mistakes and then have to answer for all of these mistakes because we were uneducated or we weren't educated enough or we weren't um, aware enough or we didn't say the right thing. So we just froze, you know? Yeah. And, you know, can I say to that, I, I think there is going to, we need and I think we need a certain level of generosity for each other and ourselves yeah. in the ways that we move in the lanes we're given. Uh, because uh, you were talking about the black squares. There's a part of me that's like very cynical about that, you know? Uh-huh. And then there's another part of me that I was like, oh, I wonder if some of them were just misinformed about what the purpose of that was. Yep. So, I, so I'm always trying to be, if I can, I, I'm naturally, I think, optimistic to a fault. Like, some of the people in my life, it just drives them a little nuts because I I'm, <laughs> I just try to see the good in everything. And that's not always helpful, especially in a, in a crisis situation. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I sometimes think like, you know, we're not going to get it right. And like you were saying, the, the words that we say, even very specifically certain words given, uh, uh, shared online and, and things like that. I, we're just not going to get it right. And I wonder if there can be generosity given for that. What I keep thinking of is um, some of those first responders and journalists that are, you know, in the, in those very, very violent areas um, that are constantly being bombed and bombarded. I just, I wonder even if they are sometimes thinking I'm not doing enough. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because we uh, uh, can opt out of having to see this trauma and we're managing secondary trauma of people who are actually receiving trauma of a crisis that, you know, and so all of that guilt, it, it all comes into play. But even those people there, I'm sure they have to be experiencing that. And I just wonder, certainly they need lots of generosity and care and compassion in our action. But can we each show generosity to one another as we are also experiencing vicarious trauma? Can we be we be generous with ourselves? Because maybe this just makes me soft or, or watered down or something. I, I just when I get online, I just think, gosh, everybody's so mean all the time. You know, no, they like, are. It, they really are. That's such a basic thing to say. Like, you know, in the messages and comments I've been getting, it's not that they're all bad. It's just like, you know. It's, it's, I guess, all a trauma response, you know? It, it is. I was yeah. going to say it's a hundred percent reactionary. And, yep. Yeah. And I, and I want to be fair and generous about that. So I'm, I'm kind of hitting this point. I'm belaboring it a bit, but to say that it's so important that we're 
optimistic for one another and generous towards one another because it's like let's say all of this does get resolved tomorrow you know who are the people that kind of people that we became through this you know and even though we are limited in the choices that we have at the same time there are still choices that we can make so you know i i think about um i had this odd maybe not odd is the right word but this tough experience the last few weeks at the hospital where i'm sitting with a patient they're worried about their test results they're worried about the treatment that's coming and then on the tv overhead um they've turned it to the news mm. and so they're worried about their own cancer diagnosis while at the same time the news is showing footage of buildings being bombed and um this patient with cancer uh you know is both traumatized by this and they are experiencing their own crisis and i can see in their face that they're trying to hold space for both things and even you know patients who are like can you pray for me they will nine times out of 10 say nine times out of 10 will say can you pray for the world too you know what's happening you know with those lives lost and uh i'm i'm hoping for that they are generous on themselves through that that yes you know they they have a deep care for the world and also can you care for yourself because you are carrying your own thing and i don't say one at the expense of another i, I know how that can sound no. um but we i just believe we need that generosity it's the both and mindset it's the the brain that is willing to say that life is important and my life is also important right so it's the swing away from this attitude that historically would have said like, oh, I matter, like I matter intrinsically and nobody else does, right? That kind of narcissistic mindset of putting yourself in the center and, and validating what you're experiencing and not paying attention, right? There's the privilege. Okay. But the other side of that is I am so lowly that my cancer diagnosis isn't as dangerous or as bad as someone who's afraid that their home is going to be bombed while they're sitting inside it. We see it a lot. I see it a lot in clients who will say, well, I'm not, it's not that bad. What I'm experiencing is nothing compared. They're literally bypassing their own very valid needs and pain in order to, I don't know, try and feel better. Maybe they're trying to appear really worldly or like holy and, and like a happy, likable person because they care about other people's pain. When what, we actually need is the balance of both ends, the capacity to validate our own emotions, experiences, our feelings, the sensations in our body, and to check in for a sense of self-regulation so that when we do show up and watch the news, we are not activated to the degree that we become ineffective. We are activated and able to move in a positive direction toward whatever resolution looks like, whatever capacity we have to support what's happening overseas, right? Yeah. When you said about, I, where you were talking about the journalists overseas, wondering if they're doing enough, put yourself right back at work. You have had those questions. Am I doing enough? Every, yeah. again, like the, what's happening overseas, what's happening in our backyards. There's a huge, I mean, in the last few years, there's been this really, big resurgence in talking about human trafficking. And I have a friend that works in the field um, 
who is a survivor of being trafficked and mm. is actually an educator and works with the FBI and her work is brilliant. But a lot of what she spends her time on is correcting misinformation because when we are activated, but we are not regulated, we move towards what we think is a solution, but we end up spreading information that is completely inaccurate and convoluting the, the real path and the real answers towards what can solve, what can resolve the crisis. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, it, yeah. when we invalidate ourselves, we're invalidating like our ability to be human together. Yeah, you know, and that, that both and part um i think um there's proportionality too in that because the both and i don't think it's always 50 50 i think for example in times like this where we are seeing lots of uh terrible awful violence there's a part of my heart that's like okay i'm gonna shift my energy it can't just be Absolutely. like you know, I'm going to look out for myself 50%, them 50%. Like my heart goes out to them completely. You know, when I'm at work, yeah. it's like, yes, I'm taking care of myself, but right now I'm fully present for this patient. You know, and I'm not talking about hard numbers, like, oh, I'm 99% here. Right. And one, you know, it's not like that. But really, I think there is a way where, at least in individualistic cultures, sometimes when I hear both and what I'm hearing is, mm, you know, I'm, I'm going to evenly be for me and them, even though over mm. there they have the bigger need. I see. And yeah. And so I, I think proportionality is very important. Like who has the bigger need? And at the same time, each of us having our own needs, I think we need to know our own capacity. Like we need to pick our proportionality even throughout the day, like mm -hmm. where I'm going to be at and who I'm going to be for right now, where I'm, what I'm going to prioritize. And so at work, it might be 80, 20, but at home, you know, I, I need to kind of wind down, take off my shoes. And right now it's me time. I'm going to be a hundred percent, just five minutes by myself with no stimuli, nothing, you know? Um, and then there are some folks like my patients who are watching the news on their TV. How much can they really do? And I know that their heart is going out uh, for those lives lost and, and the people killed there. And at the same time, it's like as much as they want to proportionally in their time of crisis, illness, injury, they need to seek the treatment and seek care for themselves. And so um, I know what you meant by both hand. Oh, I think yeah, I, just, I love yeah, and I, it. Yeah, and I think I just needed to add that in times of crisis like this, it does require more of us. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't want, I don't want that to ever be like an escape avenue where I'm like, oh, you know, both hand means something else. Um, but it's very, very true. I mean, I think throughout the day, there are going to be times where we do need to just look out for ourselves in that moment, because we have the, we have needs, each of us. And sometimes that's going to outweigh what's happening. Um, but at the same time, being proportional about it and saying, okay, well, now I'm here. 90% of me needs to go to this. <laughs> well, what you're asking for is wisdom, right? As parents, you and I both understand I'm going to stand up and feed both of us. I'm going to feed myself and I'm going to feed my child today. Who's the priority, right? And we we fall into that rhythm of, well, clearly the child needs to be fed first, most likely. If they haven't eaten and I haven't eaten, I can handle going another day without eating. This child can't. They don't have the same strategies or capacities. And I think that um, I have a friend who she's brilliant. And the other day she said something about anger and how someone was challenging her kind of the same idea. 
her involvement or her pushback on giving a hundred percent of yourself to an organism, to something, to a crisis, to a trauma, um, and people being angry about it or being angry with her, um, for not saying yes, devote all your time, energy, money, and resources into this thing. She was going in the direction of, I'm not using anger to make me yell at people for not doing the thing I think they should be doing. I'm letting anger be a good thing because it tells me my love of people is challenged right now because I see people not receiving what they need. Not, I see people being harmed, but the inverse of that to say, I see people not receiving what they need. That is activating anger in me, which is the thing behind why I'm moving forward. Why in this instance, I'm saying, yes, I can care for myself and know myself really well so that I can present as much capacity as I have to, to step into this. And I think what I keep witnessing is um, indignation and anger toward the people who would say um, even a proportion of my energy has to go back towards myself and call that privilege because they are unaware of how their anger can serve them really well to affect a positive change. And when I look back over the last five years, we'll say uh, the different social movements, the different political movements that have happened um, that have been effective and the ones that have been ineffective, I can tell where anger was used as a weapon and where it was used as information, right? Um, yeah, I, I read a quote by... I think I quoted her in my book, Layla F. Sad. Uh, she's a, mm -hmm. you know, activist educator. She said, um, there's rage that empowers and rage that devours. Yeah. Okay. And that's such a subtle yet important distinction. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, when we see the end result of anger, it can sometimes both empathic anger and, and violent anger can look the same. It almost looks like two hands of the same body. But the intention, the purpose, um, the what is trying to be achieved can be very, very different, you know. And yes, you're right. Uh, it can be easily told, uh, you know, when that's occurring. But, you know, I so I was in this uh, online chat room the other day where it was like a organized protest and it, it, we were in this Zoom meeting, like a few leaders. And um you know, I guess I was the clergy representation for that room. And there were all these amazing people in this room. And one person was like, you know, we're doing this for peacemaking and unity. And we need to, you know, coordinate with these people, um, coordinate with those who disagree with us. And then there was another person uh, who was all about um, making this like, like, we need to give out food and let's make it kind of more of that sort of thing, like a block party. And then there's another person in the room who was like, I'm so angry. All I feel is rage. We need to speak the truth, get a bullhorn and all this stuff. So each of them had very different ideas about what they thought the protest would be. And as I was listening, what I recognize is that we needed each of those people mm -hmm. in that room. And we needed each of those voices in those lanes. And maybe I didn't agree with all the different ways that they wanted to approach this protest, but... I also saw that um, all their hearts were in, quote unquote, the proverbial right place, you know, mm -hmm. because 
they all want to change. They were all just seeking it in different ways. And maybe I didn't agree with all the different ways, but I saw that they were each needed. And so that person who was angry, there was maybe a little bit of pushback in the room because it's like, oh, that's not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I wanted to validate like, hey, you know, yeah. you are right to be angry. I am angry too. And we need you. We need this. And so that anger that empathic communal anger for the person who is wounded, we do need that and ought not to be scared of it. Yeah. I love that because that reminds me of where we're all at at any given moment. Every one of us is dealing with some new um, symptom, so to speak of what we've experienced and how it's coming out of us and wherever we're at in our self-awareness journey, in our um, process of, learning how to settle ourselves and how to come back to a place of attunement internally. Um, We're going to show up like each one of those people at some point in our lives. It might be really quick. We might move through rage, destructive rage, really fast into a place of like, okay, however, I could also make a sign or maybe I could write a letter or maybe I could donate money, right? We have all these different things. I think the, the, the trick if we could say that there's a trick to surviving secondary trauma like this, um, mm. it really is just that willingness to pause and reflect on our own internal state, right? We can't show up as surgeons at a, in a dysregulated alcoholic, you know, drunk state. We have to actually acknowledge our internal state and come into surgery. Not we, we're not surgeons, June. We can't show up in surgery. <laughs> there's a lot of trouble if we do hypothetically speaking, (laughs) we have to like be settled. We have to be in the right mindset before I approach a client, before you approach, approach a patient, we aren't going in frantic and, you know, scattered. We are taking a moment and centering ourselves and, and doing the best that we can in that moment to regulate so that we can co-regulate with the people around us. And I think that that's, that's really um, powerful is just being able to recognize what does secondary trauma of any flavor activate within you and how do you identify it so that when it comes back, you have knowledge about what to do. That's not privilege. That's a human right. That's wisdom that any individual deserves space and time to learn about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think there are some folks who um, may wait a little bit and once they find themselves grounded grounded or centered or a little bit healed from the thing that happened, uh, we'll begin to speak on it. Uh, you know, I also want to advocate and vouch for those who, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, fresh in their wounding and injury will then speak up. Yeah. And maybe they're not fully grounded or centered but they're certainly um, very aware and passionate about what has happened to them. Right. And therefore will speak, you know, some of the most incredible and profound and moving things we've seen are at the center of that crisis, right when it's happened. And then there are other times, I think the term is called floodlighting, where someone is so still very overwhelmed and consumed by the intention to harm others because they've been harmed, Mm. that the things they're saying are maybe not necessarily helpful. Right. So I think there's room, you know, for all the people in the room, right? (laughs) 
yeah, for all our different selves. And there are certainly times when I've been injured when I knew I need to wait, you know, and there are other times when I was injured and I said, I need to speak right now from my injury and there's no time to wait here. So that's going to be different for everyone. And I think, you know, it won't go perfectly. You know, sometimes people will speak from their injury, maybe when they shouldn't. And sometimes there are people who uh, wait and they shouldn't. Um, but yeah, I think the more room we can make for all those different kinds of voices and people, again, generosity, you know, can we be generous for all the different times and, and voices? Yeah. I love that you're referring to it as an injury as well. As you were saying that, I was like, oh, it's not, I wonder how many people would only put that word on a physical ailment or a wound that comes out of a bumping into a tree or a table that, and you talked about it earlier too, with moral injury, thinking about how any impression of trauma in your life, if you frame it as an injury might actually soften your response to it so that you can give yourself permission to feel it instead mm -hmm. of reacting to it, but really just responding like, Oh, I'm metaphorically bleeding. That's not good. But yeah. the, the beautiful thing that we've talked about and have not acknowledged just yet is that in every one of these instances, we haven't said, Hey, go off alone, be by yourself, reflect, think your own thoughts and really just ruminate on what you've experienced and then come back to the table. We've said, be with people. There are a lot of voices. There are a lot of um, ways to regulate and to be present with each other and to be gracious and to honor each other's process and to bear witness and really holding space for people is a skill set that we're all still learning. We're all still yeah. like practicing at any given moment. So I think, yeah, I think even just practicing that treating moments and treating people as they might have an injury they're not quite telling you about or not ready or comfortable with and treating that sacred moment. Yeah. Yeah. As a sacred person. Hmm. I think a real quick thing on finding other people, you know, there is a difference between uh, comfort and safety. I think I learned that from, yeah. um, a book called that I called the wake up where, you know, being by ourselves and alone solitude and things like that. Uh, me being introverted. I, I love doing that <laughs> sometimes to my own detriment. You know, I mean, this might be the most I talk all week with you. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, you know, but doing that for our own comfort to stay in a comfort zone, of course, that's no, that's not helpful. It's not healing. It's not beneficial. Um, but finding safe people, Yep. Um, you know, cause safe people can disagree. We can be challenged. And I think there is going to be a certain level of dysregulation, whether it's due to our own history of trauma or just a very, uh, I guess, difficulty of talking through challenging subjects and situations. Absolutely. Yeah. There's going to be some dysregulation. I, I was talking with some, a few people the other day about how dysregulated they felt about after they posted, you know, their opinions or thoughts or perspectives to push back or feedback and things like yeah. that. And for myself too, the comments and messages I'm getting. Um, and at the same time, I also welcome a lot of those voices, even when they're hard and even when they push back really hard, because I want to hear. And I think that some of those voices, even if it's not comfortable, they've still approached me in a way that I deem safe for myself. Mm -hmm. um, they have not demanded or pushed or intruded upon me. I'm, I'm welcoming them 
to be able to give me a, a different perspective or their own opinion or story. And so to your point, yeah, I mean, being alone by ourselves um, for comfort is, I don't think, helpful for anyone. Um, but if we can be with each other in safety, I think that's where the change is going to happen. Yeah. That is the thing we need to hear. It's okay to be with people that are safe. It's okay to be alone for a period of time, but remembering and finding ways to come back out of that is really important. You have multiple books, but you have a new one coming out in the spring, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some of my stuff is like self-published and I look back on it with some embarrassment, but that last book, uh, Voices We Carry, that was out in 2020. And then I took kind of a break, I guess. And this next book is coming out in May of 2024, which is both uh, AAPI Heritage Month and Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to uh, share the title and cover yet. I really wish I could, Mandy. That's okay. Um, I can share with you privately. Um, <laughs> I'll message it to you. Um, but yeah, yeah, that one is specifically on grief. And it's eight chapters. Each one covers a different dimension of grief. So for example, loss of mental health, um, loss of worth due to abuse, loss of faith. And the last chapter is uh, loss of a loved one. And so part of it's memoir, part of it is my hospital chaplain experience, and some of it's a guide. And so yeah, that's coming out in May. And Mandy would love to chat with you again. Oh yeah, year. you'll be back. <laughs> yeah, because I just love chatting with you and talking with you. And you're you're very, very well versed in all of this. Hmm. And um, yeah, I I read everything you write, even if I don't comment or click like, but your oh. stuff is powerful and valuable. So thank you for being a voice in this space too. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I'm excited about your work because it's like those are hugely disenfranchised areas of grief that mm. to to validate that for someone, you've probably seen it, the look on their face when they recognize, wait, it's okay that I'm grieving that. It opens an entirely new avenue of healing for them that at some point they invalidated themselves and restricted themselves from by just believing like, well, my, my grief's not as bad, right? I think I say on a daily basis, it's okay to grieve that because- you are grieving that it's a real, it's your reality. So you should feel that feeling and then see what comes from that. So thank you. Thank you for writing that and for being present. And like I said, I just have been so grateful to know you and to be in your world and hear what you're putting out and to see the way that you are affecting change so greatly in your corner of the world. And um, I'm hopeful that this conversation does just that, that it releases some of the tension around secondary trauma, or maybe gives people even a little permission to recognize, oh, what I'm experiencing is secondary trauma. Now what? And have mm -hmm. some space to ask those questions for themselves as they continue to advocate and be present. So thank you, June. I'll make sure that your um, Instagram and social media, all the good stuff is all linked <laughs> for people to come find you because they should. Um, if you don't know who June is on the internet, you would you would have fun because his graciousness is so much uh, more impressive than my own. The way you handle some of the things that are said to you is such a masterclass in compassion and kindness. It, I literally take notes. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> That's a nicer way to say that. Thanks, June. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 111 of Restorative Grief. There is no easy answer on how to address any of this. 
as much as we both wanted to offer one. Thank you for listening to episode 111 of Restorative Grief. There is no easy answer, as much as we both want to offer one, as to how someone should approach the ongoing traumas in the world and the 24-hour news cycle. In every moment, something new and horrible is happening, but our brains were never meant to carry the weight or solutions of it all. Learning to navigate your own secondary traumatic responses and remain present might look like providing yourself with the space to mourn what you cannot fix, to lament the distress of our inability to prevent global tragedies. Being present with yourself and for others in their moments of need is a sacred gift. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I want to thank you for your willingness to start such a big conversation, and I hope that you'll find pieces of today's chat that allow you to soften toward yourself and what you can offer. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review, as well as share this social Please be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and consider sharing this episode on your socials. Check out the show notes for links to June's earlier work and seriously go follow him on Instagram because what he shares is invitational and challenging. We need more of it. And as always, one last thing, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.